like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Book of Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up where James left off last week in our series on church matters. As we started this series, we spent some time discussing the importance of the body of Christ and talked about some of the purposes and the fact that we need to revisit on a somewhat regular basis our function as the body of Christ and the purposes for which God intends us to exist and the purposes for which he called us into existence. The first week we looked at the purpose of being evangelical Christians. Okay, The word evangelical meaning good news and Christians meaning Christ followers. So an evangelical Christian we talked about is a believer who spreads the good news of Jesus through their life. And that's one of our primary functions as the body of Christ is to share the good news of Jesus. Last week, James talked about discipleship and a growth into unity till we all come to a place where we can effectively serve God and others. Today, we want to put an emphasis on the theme of service and ministry in the body of Christ from the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read a small portion from chapter 4 when I get to this in just a moment. And then we'll uh, also ask you to look at 1 Corinthians 12. So if you want to quick slip your finger into 1 Corinthians 12, that'll save you a little bit of time later when we get further on in the message. Last week, I got a call from uh, Marissa Cusimano asking me an interesting question. She said, I'm looking for the address of the new guy at church who is always willing to help. Looking for the address of the new guy at church who's always willing to help. I thought, that's like a pretty awesome way to be known. Had no idea what his name is. <laughs> I suspected who it was and guessed correctly uh, because that's been this man's reputation since he's been in our church, just always willing to help. I thought, what a fascinating reputation. And honestly, this should be the reputation for all of us in the body of Christ. The person that's always willing, no matter what it is, to serve, to pitch in, to minister, to help. The Bible uses many analogies to talk about the church, and I think each week we've kind of given this brief list of pictures of the body of Christ, analogies, metaphors, ways to speak about what the church is. In the New Testament, you find the church is the bride of Christ. It is the building or temple of God. It is God's holy nation. It is his family. It is his army. Okay, and all of those analogies aim at helping us to get our arms around what we are to be as the body of Christ. The preferred New Testament analogy for the church, particularly for the Apostle Paul, when he's seeking to help people understand how they fit together, his preferred analogy is so obvious in the New Testament, and that is the picture of the church being the body of Christ. If you've done any study of the physical body and circulatory and respiratory systems and all the parts and all the things that go together, you understand that the body is... Not independent pieces, but it is dependent parts that together form a healthy, effective physical body. This preferred analogy is mentioned at least eight times in the book of Ephesians about the body of Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, I think I've counted over 20 times that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And you start to get an idea that this analogy, this metaphor, 
has some very important things to communicate to us about our relationships to each other in the body of Christ, about how we function together as the body of Christ. I want to ask you this morning to do something that I think is difficult for many of us. We, if you've been around Christ and you've been in the context of church life for 10 or more years, which is probably true for a good number of us, it's, it's a frustration and we all face it. And we all live with the reality that it is hard to change. Once we've kind of settled into patterns or settled into certain kinds of relationships or certain kinds of ways of living, modes of operation in terms of relationships, it's difficult to make a shift. Sometimes we write people off by saying something like this. Well, they've been like that forever. They'll never change. Here's a fear I have. A fear I have as a pastor, and I... You you hit on this theme of vital relationships and the importance of seeing each other as dependent upon one another, interdependent upon one another. And sometimes you get the feeling that nothing is changing. Because people have had experiences that have kind of jaded their view of the church. It's affected how they relate to the body of Christ. It's affected their willingness to really commit and reconnect to the church as they once did. And so I stand before you this morning realistic in my expectation. My, my desire is simply to provoke you with biblical truth that, as Doug shared with us earlier, is able to pierce, or I think as Carmelo prayed, is able to pierce, dividing asunder soul and spirit, thoughts and intents, all those things that go on in our hearts. God is able at times to break through with the sword of the spirit and do something amazing in your heart that will reorient the rest of your life and that will tie you to the mission and plan of God in the context of the local church. Ephesians 4, verse 14. I want to start reading there this morning. This is where James has ended. This is where we will pick up this morning. Paul says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning craftiness of men in deceitful scheming. Instead, and here's the vision, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, that is the head of the body, from him the whole body joined together, I'm sorry, joined and held together by the whole body, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now this is Paul's grand vision of the church. A body that understands that we have many parts, but we are unified in the midst of our diversity. We have a common goal, and that is to represent the work of Christ in the community that God has called us to live in as a local assembly of Christians. Now for Paul, this picture of the church has very practical outworkings and applications that unfold in the following text. And I just want to skip over them this morning very quickly and just touch on them so that you have an understanding of how this vision of life together works for Paul as understanding ourselves better as the body of Christ. In 17 to 24, he talks about the old way of life and the new way of life. He talks about our responsibility to put off old habits and to put on new habits, to become more pure and more like the body of Christ. In verse 25, he makes this observation. Listen to what he says. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. 
okay? So there's this idea of communication within the body of Christ, speaking truth to one another, learning how to effectively love and honor each other. In verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. So you find this transformation. Somebody came in from outside. His reputation was that he was a thief. The transformation in his life is part of the body of Christ. He becomes a working individual who now contributes to the well-being of the body of Christ. Verse 29. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, and so now there's this idea of communication that comes into the body of Christ. You have sharing, and you have communication, and you have transformation. All of these things taking place in the context of our experience with the body of Christ. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So you start to find this body now functioning in very specific ways. And as you go on, he talks about function in relationship to the workplace, the church in the context of marriage, church in the context of parenting, all of us living out our Christian experience as the church, effectively, Lord willing, representing Jesus. And I love then how Paul ends the book. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. Verse 19 of chapter 6, Paul says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. And then end of verse 20, he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly. Now, why point that out? Because at the end of the day, what does Paul say it's about? It's about the relationships that we have each other, where we lift each other up. In this context for Paul, he is pleading with them to pray for him so that he can effectively do his part as a member of the body of Christ. So there's all of this interdependency and relational activity happening in the context of church life. The argument I would make to the church today is that many of the commands that are given here cannot be fulfilled and are not fulfilled in the context of a Sunday morning service. Would you agree with that? I mean, so you start to get this idea or picture that body life is enhanced by what happens here. And the, the job and work of preachers and teachers is to build the body up so that it can then go out and be the body. So we gather corporately and we are the body of Christ. But this is a, kind of a picture of us gathered together. What we really need to start focusing on what is us being the body of Christ. And so often as a pastor, I live with this concern that we are the church but we often aren't practicing what it is to be the church. Does that make sense? We talk about Sunday morning, at something like this, okay? Today, I am going to church. Can I, when you, we know what we mean by that at a certain level. But I'm concerned about what we mean by that. I'm going to church meaning what? Well, I'm going to a place where other people of like mind and like faith are going to be together. Understand this. It's possible for me to go to church and not be the church. Does that make sense? So uh, you can come here faithfully on Sunday morning and get fed and equipped to be the church and not be the church. And I think sometimes the evil one redefines things. 
okay? And we come to a place where we feel like our, our church responsibilities or our church life is bound up in what happens here in an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes on Sunday morning. And I think it has a devastating effect on our impact in our community for Jesus. And I think it has a weakening effect on us as the body of Christ. Okay? Going to church won't change you. Yielding yourself to be the church will dramatically change this group of people. So I want you to think in terms of not going to church this morning. I want you to think in terms of being the church. Because this analogy, the church is the body of Christ. The body is the instrument in which I go and make a difference. Okay, it's the instrument that God has given me to live my life in, to make a difference for people. It's the instrument through which I can serve others. I can meet needs. I can go and pray for people. I can be involved in their life and it can encourage them. I can seek them out when they need help. I, all of us, all of us are called by God to be involved and to make a difference. To put a focus on what we are to be rather than a focus on what we are. Beginning to realize at some level that our gathering together on Sunday morning and please understand how I say this. It matters. It has a God-given purpose. There are clear directives to preachers and teachers in the context of church life to fulfill their ministry to one another. We have an obligation as leaders to teach you the word of God. But that teaching has a purpose and a name that I want us to look at this morning. Okay, so that we don't simply focus on going to church. But we start talking about being the church and we start being the people that someone says, hey, do you know the name of that person at church? That helpful person? That person that's involved? That's always willing? You know, if you had a church full of people like that, it would be an unbelievable thing, wouldn't it? But it takes a shift in our thinking. So this morning, I want us to talk about this shift in our thinking as the body of Christ. I want to give you three thoughts from this text <clears throat> that hopefully will help us to understand the body of Christ. One is the design of the body. Secondly, we'll look at the aim of the body and then the motive of body life. So let's first look at this idea of the design of the body of Christ. And I think as you read through the New Testament, it becomes inescapable that God has designed the church to be his body. Now, a body is what? It's it's the person, but it's not the person, right? Because every time I do a funeral, you know what? If it's an open casket funeral, which is becoming more rare, but when it is, I often say, this is not so-and-so. This is the body they lived in, okay? We are not Jesus, but we are the body Jesus has chosen to live in. That should blow you away. We are the means by which Jesus Christ seeks to manifest his presence in this world. That is an awesome, high, and powerful privilege and calling that God has given to us. The design of the body. Verse 7 of Ephesians 4 says this. I'm just going to pick up a couple of highlights of this theme. Verse 7 says, But to each one, grace, that is the word charisma, grace Capacity has been given just as Christ apportioned it. As he metered it out 
as he distributed it. And you start to get the sense that Christ is exercising his authority as the head of the church in the distribution of spiritual gifts, God-given capacities to impact others in the church. Okay, so, so this design that Christ has given, okay, is through the distribution of gifts. And this is how he, Christ, permeates the church in practical ways by the Spirit. He takes up residence in believers' lives, and he gives to believers capacities to impact the lives of others. Folks, please understand this. No spiritual gift is given for personal benefit. That, hopefully, is a shocking truth. Okay? No gift is given for personal benefit. It is given for the building up of the body of Christ. So when Christ ascended, what did he do? He distributed to his church as the Lord of the church who has all authority and power. He distributed capacities to make a difference in the life of someone else. See, that's the danger of going to church. Because when I go to church as as an observer and not a participant, okay, I short-circuit the design of the body of Christ. He has given capacities to every believer so that something between us will begin to happen, that we will begin to interrelate and live and interdepend. Okay, that's what God wants to happen. I know it's probably not a word, but that's what he wants, us to be intimately related, dependent upon one another. And that is by design. He gave gifts to each one of us. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. If you put your finger there, if not, you can listen. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Listen to this description Paul gives. Now to each one, and that is every believer in context, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. I want you to listen to what this says. The manifestation of the Spirit, the evidence of God's presence, is given for the common good. Not for your personal benefit, Not for your self-image to be enhanced, but for the common good. In other words, God is equipping you by the Spirit so that you can effectively impact the lives of other people. Folks, that is an awesome privilege. I was talking to the teenagers this morning about friendships, relationships. The idea that friendships and relationships affect the direction and quality of your life. Folks, listen, God has gifted you to affect the direction and quality of the life of the person sitting beside you this morning. He gifts you sovereignly by design so that you can make a positive difference in someone else's life. Folks, that's powerful. Most of us sit on wet powder. And there is not that explosive sense of the Spirit's purpose in what He's made you to be and gifted you to accomplish. It will change how you go to church. If you realize that God has given me capacities for the common good. In 1 Corinthians 7, 11, it says, the, the, verse 11, he says, all these 
are the work of one and the same spirit. This is what James focused on last week. Unity. And he gives them to each person. Listen to what it says. He gives gifts to each person, capacities, as he, God, determines in his church. Folks, do you understand what that means? Your your God-given capacities should direct how you function in relationships in the body of Christ. And here's what I want you to understand. Not just on Sunday morning. Because what happens here is very similar to what happens in many places. In terms of coming together, saying hi, greeting each other, and leaving. There are other things that we do in worship and the word that bring power to this meeting. So those things that are going on and should go on, acts of kindness and friendliness and sharing, all should be part of what we're about. But I want to nudge you to think more deeply about the sovereign design of the church. He has given gifts so that when every person here is doing their part, we become effective. together okay and that's why god gifts us for the common good so that each of us comes with an understanding that i make a difference in this church family i make a contribution by god's design the pastor i grew up under defined ministry is and i'll doug if you remember this definition ministry is sensing and meeting needs and folks We often sense needs, but if we're honest, like really painfully honest with each other, a lot of times, and and a lot of you are good at this, but a lot of us aren't, I often sense things and don't follow through. The Spirit of God nudges, prompts, provokes, call this person, write a letter to this person. Just as I'm going through my day, and you know what often snuffs it out? Me. My desires what I want to do with my life, because what I don't value is that I am part of something bigger than Tim Hoff. That may come as a shock to you that anyone would think that he's important, okay? I understand something, okay? God wants us as he prompts and moves and directs. He wants us to walk in the Spirit. Because as we do, it will unleash the gifts that God has given you. In fact, I would argue this. Most people will never find and really understand their gifts until they get involved in life-on-life ministry with others. I mean, look around. Listen to what you hear. Listen to the prayer request that God places on your heart. And then start to do something as a member of the body of Christ who is gifted by God for very specific purposes. So when you sense needs, start to go out and meet them. Sometimes you're going to say, well, what if I step outside of the realm of my capacity? Then trust God to give you the capacity you need for that task. If you sit back waiting till you feel ready, there is very little you will ever do in your life. When are you really ready? It's like saying, I'm going to have kids when we can afford to. Okay? All right, good luck with that. Don't look at what it costs because you'll never do it. You'll never be able to afford it. Somehow it works, right? The same thing is true in ministry. Look, you know God put a person on your heart this week and you didn't respond to it. Think of what would have happened in this church this week through this body if everyone who sensed the prompting of the Spirit responded, made the phone call, reached out, sent a text. Now you can send a text. You can tweet, all right? What if 
And this is in my mind. I've always thinking. I know the goal is that we all would do that. And I just meant, what would it look like? What would it look like if this church was unleashed to take the capacities that God has given us and to see them flow into action towards one another? And folks, I'm not talking primarily about what happens here, going to church. I'm talking about being the church, which is the much more substantial portion of my life. By God's design, we have responsibilities for each other. What's the aim of the body? Okay, its design is sovereign. God did it so that each one of us contributes to what God is doing. The aim of the body. And I'll state the goal. And this is, as a pastoral team, as a leadership team in our church, get talking about what would it take to get everybody involved? So we... Honestly, this, the goal is that everybody is a minister in the church. That's the goal. Is that the way it is? No, no, failure. (laughs) That's my goal as a pastor is to have to to be in in, in a leadership role in a church in which every member serves. How are we doing? I'm a failure. Okay, but that goal is set by God. And that goal should drive. Every one of us in leadership and every one of us as lay people in the context of the local body to say, God, use me. Use me. Every, minish, every member ministry is the aim of every church. And I want you to notice in verses 12 through 13 how this emerges. It says the gifts are given to prepare God's people. So in, in verse 11, it's talking about leadership responsibilities and giftings very specifically and pointedly. But it says that the function of those ministries is to prepare God's people, notice how it says it, to prepare God's people for works of service. That is God's people without exclusion. No one is exempted from every member ministry. There isn't an age exclusion. All right, there isn't an intellectual exclusion. There isn't a physical capacity exclusion. None. So, Phil, yes, you do have a part. Phil's saying to his wife, say, I matter. <laughs> I already knew you did, okay? Okay, every member ministering, in the, that's the goal of God. And, folks, if that's the heart of God for the church, that should be my heart as an individual Christian believer. That when I come together with the church, I should be saying, God, today, use me. Teach me first so that I can then begin to exercise and experience this fullness of being prepared for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So there is this every member maturity that leads to every member ministry. So as I learn God's word, it's not so that I can be more intellectually prepared to face life. I mean, it's part of it but it's not the totality of it. The aim is that I would go active in my relationship with my brothers and sisters. That when I sense a need, I feel before God a responsibility to take whatever gifts I have and use them to help to meet that need in the context of my church life and family. So the aim of God is that every part ministers to the other parts. 1 Corinthians 12 places the emphasis on the fact that Every part of the body of Christ is important and that no body part is effective in and of itself. He uses some strange analogies. He says, if the eye says to the foot, I don't need you, 
It doesn't mean that the eye doesn't need the rest of the body. And if the ear should say, you know what, I'm not a whatever, I don't need you, okay? You, you hear, I started thinking about it in this way, because you think, what is Paul after there? Well, it's obvious that if, if, the, if, if the whole body is a six-foot eyeball, okay, what, what is that to you in your mind? It's weird, right? And if you think about any part of the body severed from the rest of the body is not beautiful. All right, I started thinking, okay, because forgive me, this is the way my mind works. A hand severed from the body or an ear severed from the body or a foot severed from the body or a lip severed from the body becomes the stuff of horror. Do you understand? It is... It is what John Stott was referring to when he talked about unchurched Christians being a grotesque anomaly. I used that phrase the first week, and then somebody called me and said, what was that phrase you used on Sunday? I said, grotesque anomaly. I said, I was quoting someone. What is he saying? He's saying when you take any part of the body and sever it and let it live independently, two things will happen. It will die, and it will horrify. That's what happens. So when Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ, he's talking about an essential relationship to one another so that we don't survive, but so that we thrive in Christ. When we each are watching out for each other and doing our part, and when he prompts, we get involved in ministering to each other. So the aim of the body is that every member would be involved in ministry. And then this last thought, the motive of body life. And so the question becomes, why? Why? Ephesians 4 and verse 16 ties this out. It says, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, isn't that interesting? He goes down to levels of knowledge of the physical body that start to show how it all fits together. Held together, joined by every supporting ligament, every part doing its part. It grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So now you start to see church life in a different way. It, what is church life? It's work. But it's building itself up in love. So the motive for the work of ministry is what? It's love. It's Christ-like desire to see other people improve in their life and grow to honor and glorify Him. That's the focus. What will keep us at it in an imperfect world where there is brokenness, hurt, and hurting people? You know what will keep you at it? Christ-like love. That's why in Ephesians 5, verse 30, or 4, verse 32, here's what he says. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Where? In the context of body life, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So the motive of body life is love. Here's the way I would say it. What physical blood is to the physical body, the love of Christ is to the body of Christ. It is the essential lifeline for the church. 
that we would grow to understand and grasp how to selflessly care for the needs of others like Christ did. 1 Corinthians 13.1, Paul hammers this issue. He says, and now I show you the most excellent way. And what is the way? The way is love. And in Ephesians 3, verse 17, here's how Paul, or here, here's how, sorry, uh, chapter 4, I think it is, I got myself, uh, chapter 3. Look at verse, uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 17. Okay, look at what he says. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, my prayer for the church is that they would know the love of God because if you don't know the love of God, you can't practice the love of God. So folks, if you've never trusted Christ, don't try to be a vital member of the body of Christ. You need to know the love of Christ in order to move in and practice the love of Christ. Does that make sense? When I know that kind of love, I can practice that kind of love. And so Paul prays that the early church would know the love of Christ. And then I started poking around in my mind thinking, all right, this, this priority of love, how is it expressed in Ephesians or Galatians 5, verse 22? Well, it's expressed as the fruit of the Spirit. And it should not surprise us that the first fruit of the Spirit listed in the list is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the lifeblood of the church. It's what does keep us together, but it's not feeling love. It's a practical, selfless love that serves others like Christ did. So when you want to understand the love of Christ from John 13, how do you understand it? You understand it in the context of Jesus, the Son of God, the head of the church, bending down and washing the feet of his disciples. And it's from that position at their feet that Jesus looks up at them and says, as I have loved you, love one another. And then the greatest expression of that selfless love at their feet is on the cross. Folks, we need a selfless love that serves and sacrifices if our church is going to become a vital representation of Jesus in our community. Where we understand that we have an obligation and a responsibility to each other. And that the lifeblood of what we do is love. Christ-like, selfless, sacrificing love. But see, folks, then when God prompts my heart with the need in someone's life, I can't ignore it. Not if I love them. Not if I love them. A couple of applications of these basic principles. Every believer, by God's design, is important. Every believer, of every age and of every circumstance, is important in the body of Christ. Because Jesus purchased you with his blood and placed you in the body and gifted you to serve others. Now, you know what the evil one loves to do? The evil one loves to diminish the value of what Jesus gives. And he will try to do that based upon sins in your life to devastate your heart and make you feel like I shouldn't. The other thing he will do, he will cause you to compare your gifts to the gifts of others which always leads to and has devastating consequences. 
These texts that we've looked at, I think, place an emphasis on the fact that every believer is important. Folks, listen. There are not and should not be franchise players in the church. Meaning a person who, if they go down, everything suffers. There should not be such a, church, a person in the church. My football team had that. Okay? And so they weren't even in the playoffs this year. Okay? Because a star player got hurt, the whole team went down. That's not true when you have a true team. And God's design for the church is that we would be a team. And I thank God that I have the privilege of serving in a church where there are many players on the field, many people who are involved, serving and reaching out and meeting the needs of others around them. Secondly, this thought, every believer adds value to the body of Christ. Every believer adds value to what we are as the body of Christ. You see, there is a tendency in the church to believe that visible people are important people. And that non-visible ministry does not matter. Okay, folks, that is a notion that we need to obliterate and destroy. All right, that kind of needs to be written on the ground and carpet bombed. Okay, when you think that the visible people in the church are the people that matter, you need to understand how God designed the church. When you determine your value in the body of Christ by comparing it to the effective ministry of others, you will devastate what God is trying to do in your heart. And if you ever think that your ministry is so important that they couldn't live without me, you devastate the church. It's that simple. Folks, I want you to think about it. The head of the church got down and washed his disciples' feet. And from that podium of being prostrated on the ground, he spoke the greatest truth. I did this so you would love one another. Let that settle in. And look at the people that Jesus chose. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the hidden parts of the body that have greater honor. I started thinking about this. I don't think any extremity on my body is a vital organ, except my skin. Okay? I think I can live without everything that you see right now, except my head, I guess. I started thinking about that. The parts you can't live with, you can't without, you can't see. So when we think that the visible parts of the body are the most important, we don't understand what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 12. The discrete parts that are in secret are the valuable parts. The unseen ministry in the church is often the most important ministry in the church. The things that you do that no one will ever know and no one will ever see but God himself are vitally important to church life. The letter you write, the phone call you make, the person that you stop by and serve makes such a difference. But we live in a world that wants to minimize that and praise the visible people. And the church is so overwhelmingly guilty of that misrepresentation. 
We need to get away from looking at ministry as formal, what happens here on Sunday morning. We need to start thinking about ministry in the informal realms also. So that much of our life together can be experienced in all kinds of places all week long where we serve each other and love each other and encourage each other and become really a healthy body of Christ. That's the design of God. And when we start to understand that our church life together will not be isolated to going to church, it'll be focused on us being the church. The other implication that I would draw from this is that every believer, and this is, men, I just, we struggle with this, okay? This is a male issue to me primarily. Every believer needs the contribution of other believers to thrive in Christ. Men have a tendency. Men have a tendency to live in isolation. Now, if you isolate any part of the body from the body, you stick a rubber band around your finger and you let it there long enough, I'm going to tell you what will happen. You will lose the tip of that finger. Okay, many men tend to strangle the spiritual life by living without vital connection to the body of Christ. The first result is ineffectiveness. Second result is spiritual death. I mean, a, a death of the spiritual impact that you could have on the lives of others. You see, folks, I am responsible to serve you. Fair enough. I am also responsible to receive service from you. And that's a part of Christian life I think that most of us don't get. We focus on, well, gifts are given so that you can serve others. But very seldom do we talk about the position of being in the place of receiving service. I go back to Jesus, John 13. Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. What does Peter say? Oh, no, Lord, not me. You're, you're up there and I'm down here. And Jesus has to turn Peter's thinking around and say, Peter, unless I serve you, you have no part in me. Men, can I say this? If you don't receive ministry from other men, I want you to think about what that means for your relationship to the body of Christ. Now, you, you may serve, you may have capacities of service and ministry in this church family. I'm asking you, do you allow people who have gifts and capacities, and that's all of us, do I put myself in a place where I, there is a reciprocal, mutual dependency? Okay, not what can I do? But also sometimes asking, what do I need? And okay, for most men are like, well, that's hard to think about. It's hard to admit. But it is the key to effective Christian living. A quote, a famous rock star. Bono said this, people with strong relationships tend to be the strongest people. That sounds pretty biblical to me. People with strong relationships tend to be the strongest people. May God help us as the church to get what it means to be the body and then to do the hard thing. You may have to shatter a pattern that's been around for 25, 30 years. 
you may have to yield to the prompting of the Spirit of God and sit down and say, when is the last time I allowed a brother in Christ to minister to me, to serve me, to take responsibility for my well-being? And if that happens, this church will be transformed. Because, folks, that is the design of God where we depend mutually upon each other. Where we don't just have givers who never get and getters that never give. God wants us, young and old. And I, I say to our young people when they go to college, every young person who goes to college that I have a chance to do this with, I say to them, look, please get connected to the body of Christ when you go to college. Because if you don't, the environment will chew you up and spit you out. It will destroy you. And folks, parents, if your sons and daughters don't see you craving and needing life together, do not expect them to want it. If they don't see you craving and pursuing life together, do not be surprised if it is unimportant to them. Live as if what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called life together really matters. And when you do, the church of Christ will become the dearest place on earth, as Charles Spurgeon said. Where we really care and we really receive, where we really give and we really get from one another for the glory of God. Here's what Jesus said. When the church lives like that, evangelism will happen. By this, they will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, and that love is a reciprocal relationship. Folks, what the church needs to see is people that desperately depend upon one another, and then they will begin to crave that life that is found in Jesus. Father, for your glory, I pray that you will change our hearts.